This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. This event made us realize how poorly prepared we are to face these huge geological catastrophes. About 12,000 years ago, there was a period of volcanic storms, so many erupted. The earth was unstable, rocking and rolling with quakes. Geologists know that climate change destabilized the earth's crust. Does that sound too fantastic? The weight of ice, miles thick, poured into the sea as the latest ice age ended. Released from that weight, the land rose. Long-standing pressure points reacted, and the world shook. Now, after recent big quakes in Japan and Ecuador, with more underreported quakes around the world, some scientists are beginning to wonder if climate is starting to destabilize geology again. We'll talk with one of the world's best geophysical hazards experts, Britain's Dr. Bill McGuire, author of Waking the Giants. Even if that time of extra volcanoes and quakes is further into our future, the threat of everyday quakes and tsunamis is larger now. That is because so much of the doubled and tripled human population lives near the sea. We've built our megacities and nuclear power plants within tsunami range. 8,000 years ago, an earthquake caused an undersea landslide off of Norway. The tsunami raced around the whole North Atlantic, reaching up to 30 meters high. That's well over 90 feet. Adding to it all, we've globalized the economy based on a network of megacities. Several of them sit on well-known faults that are bound to blow, with quakes well above 8 on the Richter scale. The most precarious is the financial hub of Tokyo, Japan. We'll talk about what happened the last time Tokyo was nearly leveled, and the next time, which Japanese scientists say is over 90% likely within the next couple of decades. The aftershocks would be in the world's shaky financial system. Would a big quake in Los Angeles, Vancouver, or Tokyo be the trigger for a massive economic collapse in the global world? That's why our second guest, Dr. Robert Yates from Oregon, wrote his book, Earthquake Time Bombs. We'll go into that risk in depth. I'm Alex Smith, as we shake up the world with Radio EcoShock. From Japan and then Ecuador, when major earthquakes strike, the media rushed to Dr. William McGuire. He's a volcanologist and world-known specialist in extreme geologic events. McGuire is Emeritus Professor of Geophysical and Climate Hazards at University College London. Bill has advised the UK government on global threats and appears often on TV. Bill was also an author of the 2011 report of the IPCC regarding extreme events, his latest book is Waking the Giant, How a Changing Climate Triggers Earthquakes, Tsunamis, and Volcanoes. Bill, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you very much, Alex. What is your recent take on the big quakes in Japan and Ecuador? Um, well, to be honest, it's, it's really just business as usual. I mean, these are not gigantic quakes. We would expect up to a dozen of earthquakes of this sort of size every year. So it's it's really nothing unusual. I mean, you see 
stress and strain accumulating on full, so all over the planet all the time, and periodically uh, that results in a, a fault rupturing and an earthquake of this sort of size. Are we entering a more intense geologic period, or do we just have better reporting and more cell phone videos? Well, that's the thing these days, isn't it, that disasters and uh, disastrous events are in the news sort of immediately. Everybody, None of these things can happen without people seeing them or, or filming them these days. We do have a variation uh, in the numbers of earthquakes that happen every year and the number of volcanic eruptions that happen every year. But it's within the statistical noise, if you like. There's no... Not yet, anyway. There's no obvious increase in either volcanic activity or earthquake activity. But that doesn't necessarily mean that our changing environment, that climate change isn't triggering certain events. It's just that we're not sure which ones those are, and we can't detect them against the general background of activity. Right. You did put in your book, Waking the Giant, that climate change could possibly stimulate more activity from volcanoes. I have a hard time understanding how that's possible. How does it work? Well, it's something that we've we've known for a long time by looking back in time, and it's uh, there are a number of ways this can happen. One of them is where you have volcanoes that are loaded by a, a great thickness of ice, as uh, you have in Iceland today, and as you had right across Iceland, for example, in the past. When that load of ice melts, when it's removed, magma that's been unable to get out when the ice was sitting there can uh, get out more easily. Also, if you take the weight of the ice away, you actually produce more magma underneath the crust in the Earth's mantle as well. That's one way we can do it. We can also do it in, in, in the case of volcanoes that are coastally located or form islands by changing sea level. If you change sea level dramatically, either up or down, then it creates quite big changes in stress and strain in the, in the crust that can push magma out. So there's a number of ways this can happen. What about the melting of ice, say, in Iceland that, are, that seems to be capping over some volcanoes? Well, that, that is a big concern. Um, if we go back something like 12,000 years, or go back 20,000 years, the height of the last ice age, Iceland was covered by a kilometer of ice. And that weight stopped virtually all volcanic activity. But when the ice melted, around about 12,000 years ago, there was a, almost a real what's called a volcano storm. The, the rate of volcanic activity went up 50 times over a course of about 1,500 years. Now, Iceland isn't covered by a kilometer of ice today, but there is this big ice cap, the Vatnajökull ice cap in the east, and that is melting very, very rapidly. And modeling that's been undertaken suggests that as that melts, so we will see an increase in the amount of uh, lava coming out and also in the, the amount of lava that's being produced underneath the crust. So, I mean, it's certain for a start that that ice cap will melt because of the rate of temperatures rising. And we will see uh, a measurable increase in volcanic activity. And we know, obviously, from the AF Yaliokl eruption in 2010 that just one moderate eruption on Iceland can create total chaos across the aviation industry. And here is the question everyone asks you. Bill McGuire, do you think climate change is a contributing cause to the recent great quakes from Nepal to Japan? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, in terms of the, the Japanese earthquake, uh, there was a recent Japanese earthquake and the one in Ecuador, there's no particular reason why we should think climate change was involved in that. Um, the same really goes for the, the Nepal earthquakes, although there is a mechanism, for, a climate mechanism for triggering earthquakes in the Nepal region. And it's only been really discovered quite recently that when you have monsoon rainfall, um, that monsoon rainfall soaks into the sediment in the Ganges plain right across the front of the Himalayas, and it compresses the faults there. 
And it seems that that compression is causing more earthquakes to happen in, uh, in the winter months along the Himalayan, what we call the Himalayan front, than the rest of the year. So if you have a change in the monsoon, for example, as a result of climate change, then you may see some change in the controlling of earthquakes uh, in the Himalayas. But the, the Nepal earthquake, the specific earthquake that happened in, in April uh, last year, we don't have any direct evidence for a climate link. But then again, as I said, we may not, we may not necessarily see that. You know, people are concerned with climate change, and we should be, but some of us have a hard time believing these latest quakes are not... Everything has to be connected to climate. and But there must be a point where your theory does really kick in in earnest. Do we know when that might be? The, the thing is, all different faults that generate earthquakes right across the planet will be in different states of stress and strain. Some will be ready to go, ready to rupture, ready to generate big earthquakes. Others might, all, might have ruptured recently, and they may take centuries to accumulate enough strain to, to rupture again. Now, in terms of climate change, in terms of the stress and strain induced by the loss of ice, by rising sea levels, the faults that are going to be affected are those ones that are critically poised and ready to rupture to generate an earthquake. And all that's needed there is literally the pressure of a handshake to set those off. So those faults that are ready to go are the ones that are going to be affected. Now, we may not see an increase in the total number of earthquakes across the world, but you only need one or two major faults in built-up areas and urban areas that are ready to go. Only a few of those faults to be triggered by climate change and you will have a massive impact. What caused that great quake and tsunami off the coast of Japan in 2011? That was simply tectonic stresses. In other words, the world's tectonic plates pushing against one another, accumulating stress and strain over a long period of time, and then rupturing, as they do every few hundred years in most cases, and generating a big, a big tsunami. I mean, those, that earthquake was a submarine earthquake. Now, if you think about uh, one of the triggers for earthquakes uh, relating to climate change, it's to do with sea level. But in those cases, as sea level goes up and the load of the water increases and increases, it will stabilize those submarine force. They will tend to rupture probably less often. The force that we should worry about are force like the San Andreas that are parallel to a coastline because where sea level rises there, next to those force, it will bend them. It will bend one side of the fault and not the other, and that can allow them to move more easily. So we shouldn't be too concerned about submarine force, but we should be a lot more concerned about force that run across the land parallel to the ocean. But I think this is one really important point you make, Bill. Because of tsunamis, listeners do not have to live in an earthquake zone themselves to suffer the consequences. Could you tell us about another couple of tsunamis, either in human history or the geologic record? Well, we've, I mean, extraordinarily, we've had two catastrophic tsunamis, as I'm sure all your listeners will know, the Indian Ocean tsunami in 2004 and then Japan in 2011. That's really unprecedented to see them occur so frequently. But if we go back in the past, there's evidence of, of massive tsunamis right across the planet, not just in the Pacific. I think one of the most interesting formed about 8,000 years ago as a result of climate change, because after the ice sheets that covered Scandinavia, Norway and Sweden started to melt, the crust underneath there started to bounce back up very, very rapidly because of the, the weight of the ice had disappeared. That triggered lots of big earthquakes. One of those big earthquakes triggered a gigantic landslide off the coast of Norway, one of the biggest known on the planet. That generated a tsunami which was up to 30 meters high in the north of Scotland. It came right down the North Sea into, into Western Europe, and it went straight across the Atlantic towards North America as well. 
Now, it's that sort of thing that we're worried about for the future because Greenland is in a very similar situation to Scandinavia at the end of the last ice age. Two or three kilometers of ice, that ice is melting already. The crust is already bouncing back up under Greenland. We know that from GPS measurements. If that uplift causes earthquakes, if those earthquakes trigger big submarine landslides, then we could see tsunamis in the North Atlantic again. And there's a YouTube video where you introduce four major threats, and that's from another of your books, Global Catastrophe, a very short introduction. Could you just outline what those four threats are? Yes, there's there's four really big natural threats, which I call global geophysical events, or GGs. Um, There's the asteroid or comet impact. There's a volcanic super eruption. There's what I call a strategic earthquake, an earthquake that occurs somewhere that affects one of the big financial centers and therefore has a a knock-on effect across the planet in terms of employment and jobs and uh, economy and politics and this sort of thing. Tokyo is really the place I think of when I I talk about that. And then the fourth one is a a giant ocean-wide tsunami, particularly in the North Atlantic. And obviously the the place I've been working for some time now is on the Canary Island of La Palma, where you have this huge mass of rock, which is unstable, and at some point in the future will collapse into the North Atlantic and generate a major tsunami. Now, that could threaten tens of millions of people around the, the margins of the Atlantic in, in North America and also in Europe. So those are the four things, really. Super eruption, asteroid or comet impact, giant tsunami, and strategic earthquake. This is Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith with Dr. Bill McGuire. He's the well-known UK expert on extreme geophysical hazards like earthquakes and volcanoes and even climate change. Yeah, you've talked about Tokyo as a city waiting to die. That's pretty extreme talk. Tell us more. Well, in, in a sense, it's, it, it is. I mean, not literally, I don't think. But, but Tokyo is in, in one of the most seismically active parts of the planet. In the 1920s, there was a catastrophic earthquake there, which killed maybe up to 200,000 people. Uh, the fires after the earthquake wiped out much of the city. Now, today... Tokyo's population is several times bigger than that. It's something like 36 million people, extraordinary size. Uh, it's one of the major economic and financial centers on the planet. The big earthquake in 2011 in Japan actually stressed some of the faults that might affect Tokyo in the future and brought forward the timing of the next uh, large earthquake to affect Tokyo. So it's, you know, it is sitting there on a number of big faults which are pretty much ready to go. There are a huge number of people Many of the buildings are well-constructed and will withstand the earthquake, but there are over a million wooden buildings as well, which burn very, very easily, and which can trigger, again, some of these huge fires that caused problems in the 1920s quake. So it's, you know, it is a big worry, certainly. You know, I've got a quote here, Bill, from a not-always-reliable source. I'd like to check it with you. It says, Scientists at Tokyo University estimate there is a 98% chance that in the next 30 years, Japan will be hit by an earthquake equivalent to that great Kanto of 1923. Seismologists at the Japan Meteorological Agency, however, put the odds of this happening at 70%. Does that sound about right to you? It does, yes. You know, whether you're talking 70 or 90, that is a very, very high percentage in the next couple of decades. And it really illustrates the point that I think along with Istanbul in, in Turkey, uh, Tokyo is one of the two most threatened cities um, in terms of, of a coming big earthquake. And our financial system sometimes seems like a house of cards. It wouldn't take too much for one of these big cities to go down, even if it was Los Angeles, and then the whole world economy could be damaged. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, you know, the global economy ever since 1928 has really 
not recovered at all, and it's 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 clearly on edge all the time. And one of these big earthquakes, one of these strategic earthquakes in the wrong place could could just, uh, as you point out, cause things to collapse like a house of cards. I mean, I get the impression that the uh, the stock markets and the, and the the currency markets are really just waiting for something to happen before they just fall apart. And I've also talked with seismologists who are deeply worried about fault lines near nuclear power plants or the many reactors perched on the edge of the sea within tsunami range. Have you looked into that? Um, it's not an area that, that I look at in particular, but as a general point, the, the whole issue with, with nuclear power is that most power stations are coastally located. And in, uh, at times of uh, where we're going to see significant rise in sea level, that is not a good place to have these things. I mean, sea level could easily be two meters higher by the end of the century. Um, in addition to that, the oceans are warming, and of course, reactors need cooling water, so they suffer if, if temperatures are much higher, if heat waves happen. Sometimes they have to be closed down, as has happened in the past. So, now, notwithstanding a specific tsunami threat from earthquakes, just rising sea levels is going to be a big problem for nuclear power plants that are on the coast. Now, Bill McGuire, if you are advising a government on prioritizing spending, should it be on preparing for catastrophic geologic events, as we've been discussing, or to slash greenhouse gas emissions? What's your take? I think it, it has to be climate change. We are in a, a dreadful situation, despite the Paris conference last December and all the backslapping and all the congratulations. I really don't think that's that's come up with anything firm whatsoever. Uh, even if all the countries actually do what they say they're going to do in terms of reducing emissions, we've still got, in my opinion, and many other climate scientists, no chance of avoiding catastrophic climate change. So there, that has to be the priority. It really does. Things like asteroid impacts, things like super eruptions, these have uh, these are certain to happen again. There's no doubt about that. But they have long return periods, 50,000 years with a super eruption, um, a, a one kilometer asteroid, maybe half a million years. So you know, they will happen. We should be concerned about them. But climate change is here now. It's happening now. We must do something about it. We must take serious action now. You know, I've lived for years in quake-prone cities like Vancouver and Los Angeles, and I experienced the deadly L.A. quake in 1971. But I have to say, for the average person just trying to pay the bills, is there anything we can do to prepare, or should we just go on about our lives hoping it doesn't happen? Well, you know, this, this is what we do, isn't it? This is what most people do is go on about their lives hoping it won't happen to them or thinking it won't happen to them. It shouldn't really be down to individuals to concern themselves with these massive geological problems, things like super eruptions or asteroid impacts, whatever, because they are very infrequent. Even governments, although they need to pay attention to these, can't devote vast sums of money to, to trying to cope with them. What we need to do is to hope that we'll get warning signs. I mean, no volcano erupts without warning signs. Um, we can, we've spotted most of the big asteroids now, for, for example, out there, and we've got some good monitoring systems in place. So we would hope that we would see these things in time and be able to, to take measures then. But I, I don't want everybody to be um, locking themselves in a bunker with several hundred tins of baked beans or anything like that. And uh, you know, don't, don't lose too much sleep over it, I would say. What, it's safe for me to come out and not eat beans anymore? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think beans is probably the wrong thing to have in a bunker in large quantities. <laughs> um, but, you know, we can't afford to, to take this attitude to climate change. Climate change is, is absolutely critical, and it's, it's the biggest threat to our race. If if we burn all the fossil fuels or substantial proportions of fossil fuels, then, then our, the average temperature of our planet could be 
30 degrees uh, centigrade instead of what it is now, 14. Now, that physiologically, humans cannot exist under those conditions. That would see a mass dieback, a mass extinction of most of our race. And that's the bottom line. Right. Have you got another book in the works or a TV series planned? I've been thinking about this for a while, and I've sort of taken a a slight change of tack. I'm now working on a couple of um, fiction novels, young adult novels, looking at uh, which involve a climate change um, component. I'm I'm trying my hand at that at the moment. I'm finding it a lot more difficult than writing popular science, I must admit. But, um, But at some point, something may come out. You never know. And listeners can get a free new short story you've written called Incoming about climate change and mass migration at your website at billmaguire.co.uk. As we finish up, is there anything else you would like to add? Um, but, uh, being Vancouver there, obviously, you have got a bit of a seismic risk. We have got the, the Cascadia um, earthquake and tsunami problem, which is, is something which will happen at some point in the future. So uh, although talking in general about people and saying, you know, don't worry too much about these things, uh, clearly, if you live in a, a, a zone like that, an earthquake, then you do need to pay attention to what the authorities are telling you about how to prepare for earthquakes and tsunamis. So just keep safe, really. Okay, we've been talking with British professor William Maguire. He's the author of books on extreme global threats and has advised the UK government. And if you can only read one Maguire book, I recommend Waking the Giant, How Climate Change Triggers Earthquakes, Tsunamis, and Volcanoes. I'll put links to Bill and his work in my show blog at ecoshock.info. Bill Maguire, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Ecoshock. You're very welcome. Thanks for inviting me. I'm Alex Smith. This is Radio Ecoshock. I hope our East Coast North American listeners noticed that ongoing threat from a collapse in the Canary Islands. There have been sea slides before which created massive tsunamis all around the North Atlantic Basin, from the United Kingdom to Canada, America, and right over the Caribbean islands. We really don't have to live on a fault line to be part of Earth's geological pageant. On April 20th, the Seismological Society of America began its 2016 annual meeting in Reno, Nevada. High on their list is the Cascadia Subduction Zone, which runs just off the west coast of North America. It goes from northern Vancouver Island in Canada to southern Oregon in the U.S. There's been enough science to know this pressure point between two massive tectonic plates of the Earth. It moves in a jolt every 400 to 600 years. The last one was in the year 1700. We don't know when the next one will be, but it's due. Aside from the possible wreckage in Vancouver, Seattle, and other coastal cities, the resulting tsunami would sweep clean the coasts of California and Hawaii. It would probably reach Japan, as it did in the year 1700. Let's rock on with our next guest, Dr. Robert Yates. Radio Ecoshock. You can divide the human population into two kinds of people, 
those who have experienced a major earthquake, and those who have not. Each thinks differently. Robert S. Yates says we don't think about quakes nearly enough. Sooner or later, likely sooner, a megacity somewhere in the world will be hit with something that makes the 9-11 terrorist attack in New York look small. His new book is Earthquake Time Bombs, and he should know. Bob Yates is a professor emeritus in geology from Oregon State University. He's the author of the book Living with Earthquakes in California and co-author of The Geology of Earthquakes. Bob, welcome to Radio Ecoshock. Thank you for having me. Okay, so what got you started on earthquakes? Well, I uh, was working for a consulting firm in Southern California after an earthquake in 1971, um, and it destroyed a new hospital. Well, the hospital was four months old, and the earthquake happened, and it completely demolished the hospital. And I was—I'm a structural geologist, and um, I realized that this earthquake happened on a fault, which is what I study. In fact, I'd been working for Shell Oil Company and. We were uh, studying faults because they're possible sources of uh, oil and gas exploration. And I uh, said, this is really what I want to do, rather than uh, uh, writing. I I write papers for my colleagues, my professional colleagues, but I feel it's more important with the books you mentioned to write for the general public, for the people in, in your audience and other similar audiences. And moving forward, five years ago, you were interviewed by Scientific American. You told them Port-au-Prince in Haiti was in jeopardy due to a major fault line and the lack of money to prepare. A week later, 100,000 people died in a catastrophic quake. Was that just chance? Yes. Port-au-Prince had had an earthquake in the 18th century. Prior to uh, Haiti becoming independent, it was still a possession of France at the time. And uh, the one thing that stood out at the time of the interview was that Haiti is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Two things, that plus the fact that hundreds of thousands of people are migrating toward the capital, toward Port-au-Prince. And the other thing is that there's a big fault runs right outside the uh, capital city. And this fault had motion in the 18th century. And so I knew, as, as a geologist, that this place is going to have an earthquake. However, I didn't know that it was going to happen a week after my interview. That was completely serendipitous, if you will. It went viral because of, of that fact, but nonetheless, we could not predict that earthquake. And, of course, that's part of our problem. Since we can't predict them uh, here in Oregon, people say, well, okay, there's going to be an earthquake someday but i got to spend lots of money fixing my house and fixing my school, so I'll just put it off. You know, And that's, that's our problem, trying to convince people that they need to take action, they need to do it now before a lot of people get killed. Well, now later I'm going to ask you about the theory that climate change could lead to more earthquakes and volcanic eruptions, but I'd like to leave that for now. Let's look at what we can learn from the deadly earthquake in Kathmandu, Nepal, not the smaller one that hit in February 2016 this year, but the big one in April 2015. Tell us what happened. Okay, Nepal lies on a plate boundary. It's it's the boundary between the Indian plate, which is pushing northward from um, over the past 60 million years, and the Eurasian plate, which is to the north, which is mainly Tibet. And so uh, this this place um, has had some big earthquakes. They had an 8.1 in 1934. Uh, unfortunately, um, it couldn't be studied 
by an international group because Nepal was a closed country in 1934. And so um, the British uh, in India couldn't get up there and the Nepali people couldn't get down to India. So that really went, it went reported, but it didn't have the analysis that you would get today. And that was part of the problem. People have been saying this is going to have another big earthquake print and I guess the discussion has been, is could there be a bigger one? Could there be a, an eight and a half or a nine? Right now I'm reviewing a paper um, in the Nepal area, a scientific paper submitted by a team of Indian uh, seismologists. They're saying that in 1255 AD, which is just only like yesterday to a geologist, a 1255 earthquake uh, had happened in from Kathmandu East in um, and it was a 8.6. That's a real big earthquake. And then, of course, not so many people live there. But now, uh, the place is very heavily populated, and um, people in some places are are well prepared. Most places, though, they are not. And so, uh, a lot of people died. But nonetheless, it could have been a lot worse. Well, aside from the thousands of poor people killed and the hundreds of thousands left homeless. Some World Heritage Sites were destroyed almost before our eyes, where modern buildings stood. What are we supposed to do to preserve the treasured past? Well, there is. I have a colleague um, named Brian Tucker. He'd be another good one to have on your show. He's a seismologist. He just visited me um, last week. He's a seismologist, and the difference is he formed a firm that was a nonprofit called Geohazards International. And so he has devoted his life and that of, and his colleagues to uh, getting people ready to answer that very question as to how do you prepare. And he started out with Nepal. He started out with Kathmandu and formed a, um, a, a group situated in Kathmandu. He trained people to deal with the problem, Nepalese to deal with the problem. And as a result, uh, you, you would say, well, 9,000 people died. That's, that's a horrible number. But nonetheless, I think it had not been for the people really getting on the ball after about 2001, I think, when this was started. Uh, It it would have been several times that. It would have been much, much worse. So um, there are people who are dealing with this, and Nepal is sort of getting there, you know. It could have been a lot worse, this earthquake that happened, or the two earthquakes that happened in April and May. But nonetheless, uh, they've got a long way to go. Well, as you've pointed out, there has been a rush of people out of the countryside and into urban slums all over the world. And how does that new trend combine with the geology underneath? Well, I think the migration of people to major cities worldwide, uh, both those in earthquake country and those not in earthquake country, is the largest migration of people in, in human history. Port-au-Prince was a perfect example of that. The 18th century earthquakes, the loss of life there was probably in the dozens. It was because uh, very few people live there. But now, in fact, they've never really gotten a good agreement on how many people died in that earthquake in 2010. The general consensus is it was almost 200,000 people, but it's sort of hard to get a a, a good number. But it was large. It was large mainly because there were so many people living there. You know, the government is still uh, in terrible condition. They're trying to 
put another uh, president in office, and uh, there's a lot of stuff going on that I, I don't. I'm not qualified to talk about, but nonetheless, it's a it's a basket case of a country in terms of preparing for earthquakes. In the book that I have written, I've that the interview with Scientific American got me thinking about this, and I said. You know, I'm a geologist, and I know about plate tectonics, and I know about earthquakes. Is it more important for me to write to other people like myself, or is it more important to write for people like yourself yourself and your audience? And trying to get people to prepare all over the world. And there, and there are places that are in the news for other reasons, like Caracas, Venezuela, for example. And it's one of the time bombs. In 1812, there was uh, an earthquake that killed 10% of the population of that province of Venezuela. But under Chavez's government and under the present government, they've got a lot of other problems that are bothering them, mainly people trying to get the president to resign. And so earthquakes aren't on their list. It's going to have a big earthquake, and there'll be the government will be quite unprepared, although there are some scientists there, one of them is a good friend of mine, who have, are leaders in the study of earthquakes throughout South America. But it's just the, the government, the bureaucracy is just in their way. They can't get anyone to pay attention, and that probably even includes the press, the media. You know, they've got all these political problems after the death of Chavez that they don't have time to think about it. And as I say, my colleagues in Venezuela can't predict when the next earthquake is going to strike, so we put it off, right? Yeah. You know, I spent 25 years, Bob, in Vancouver, Canada, uh, always being predicted that there will be a big one there. We had bug-out packs by the front door in case the quake came. We were afraid for our kids who went to an old brick school every day. The government always promised to reinforce those schools, but never got around to it. You know, if a couple of bridges fell in Vancouver, that place would be cut off from the outside aid, except by ship or air. How does all that look to you? Well, in Oregon, we had a study done by a committee which was authorized by the legislature and it had specialists in um, seismology and geology and city planning and so forth. Look at just what you're talking about. What are the probabilities and what should we be doing? And they pointed to bridges. They, In fact, they did a study of every major bridge in Oregon, and they concluded that a lot of these bridges are obsolete. They're um, likely to collapse in an earthquake. And so that was presented to the 2015 session of the legislature, which had authorized this committee. You know what they did with it? Nothing. They didn't do anything. They had a bill, sort of a transportation bill, and they took no action on it. It got involved in politics. So the bridges, including, um, I mean, I live part-time in Newport, Oregon, including a bridge that's just a few miles from my house, that bridge was built in the 30s. It does not meet modern standards. It's likely to collapse, and if it collapses, I'm not going to be able to travel between Corvallis, where I live, and my house at the coast. And not only is the place going to be cut off, it, it'll mean that the people who are doing business there uh, won't be able to um, deal with their market. And so that could mean that people leave Newport not only bridges, but also uh, fiber optic cables, we could be completely cut off. 
But nonetheless, the legislature, and they just had a short session that just closed earlier this month, never came up. I mean, they've, they've been presented with this study, and the media has sort of covered it, but not enough people like yourself who are trying to spread the word. It's very frustrating, you know. We're doing our thing, and we're trying to tell people about it, but we're trying to get folks to pay attention. You know, there's a lot of unreinforced masonry buildings in Portland, and when one of the city commissioners, a guy named Steve Novick, thought that there ought to be a mandatory retrofit of these old buildings because people are going to die on those buildings, the unreinforced masonry guys got together and they formed an organization called the Brickers. They said, fine, reinforce the buildings if you like, but you have to pay for it. We're not going to pay for it. This is despite the fact that there are people living and working on those buildings that will die when a, a building collapses around them. I mean, it's, they're already, some of them are not usable just because they're old. I find that really, really frustrating. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. You are listening to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith with my guest, Robert Yates. We're talking about his new book, Earthquake Time Bombs. You know, when I was young, I was in the deadly 1971 earthquake in Los Angeles. Oh, that's the one that got me started. Well, there you go. We were both (laughs) there at the same time, and it was a scary experience. Well, it was scary to me, too. I lived there. Yeah, it was 6 in the morning or something. Everyone ran outside in their underwear, in my case. We had to look for teetering palm trees. They have small roots, incidentally, and power poles. But that did seem better than being crushed in the house. But you write that it's a mistake to go outside during a quake. Why is that? I think in the book, when I write about earthquakes that have happened, um, say like the 49 Seattle earthquake, there's a natural tendency to run outside. You know, they were just rattling, and, and uh, there's an, I was in an earthquake in uh, Mexico City at which this, this happened. You know, it was... Glasses were breaking, people were swearing in Spanish and stuff. And so uh, what did we do? You know, here I am, I'm supposed to know what I'm doing. We ran outside. Well, the problem with running outside is that if the building is unreinforced, and these buildings um, were kind of clapping together, they were built real close together, you know, what it could have meant is these bricks fall on us and we were killed, would be killed. Uh, and in the 49 earthquake, there was a big guy there tending bar and and they had the earthquake, and people jumped up and wanted to run outside, and he went to the door and wouldn't let them out. And so all those lives were saved just because this one guy, the bartender, just happened to have the presence of mind of saying, no, 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 <laughs> it's dangerous out there. And true enough, it, once they quieted down, they went out, and there's just nothing but bricks piled around the door. They'd all been killed by falling bricks. And the second lesson for me from that Los Angeles quake is that the first three days can be the test of surviving well or not at all. Gas lines blew up, electricity went out. In a worse quake, food deliveries would stop, maybe stores would be looted and empty. And there are frightening aftershocks during all that. Talk to us about surviving after the quake. Here, this again um, involves preparation. And I talk about that in in one of the books. I have a book called... uh, Living with Earthquakes in the Pacific Northwest, which includes you in Vancouver. And uh, this book discusses things like that. It discusses reinforcing your house, what you should do, 
and it sort of addresses all those all those questions. But yeah, there are ways to. I mean, don't run around looking for damaged places and getting in the way of rescue operations. You know, whether people pay attention to that remains to be seen. But in our case up here, in your case, all of our cases here in the Northwest, we know the earthquake history of the Cascadia subduction zone for the last 10,000 years. Because when the earthquake happened, it caused sort of a slump, sliding deposits coming off down the continental slope. And these produced deposits that my uh, colleague and former student, Chris Goldfinger, has uh, actually dated those. And so we got 10,000 years of record. And so based upon that, you can do a probability analysis. Chris has calculated that there's about a 15% chance in the next 50 years that you're going to have a magnitude 9 earthquake, which would include you as well as us. And uh, there's a larger chance, uh, say a 30 or one chance out of three, to have an earthquake of, uh, say, magnitude 8.5. And And that sounds like you're going to get hit by a a Jeep or a Mack truck. But nonetheless, there's a big difference in response between an 8.5 and a 9. And so we know that we have this bit of information that we can tell. The people up in uh, the Pacific Geoscience Center up in Sydney, near you, are fully aware of that. They're very much um, involved in the search. There's a guy named Roy Heinemann. Uh, he's, a, he's a real good guy, well-spoken. He's written about this, and he, he's like me. You know, He says, okay, I'm a specialist, but I need to talk to fellow Canadians about what I do. I can't just sit here and, and just write papers for um, other people like myself. So Canada is kind of on board. There's a guy in Ottawa named John Adams, who's a New Zealander, and I, I knew him as a New Zealander first. And, and John has also been one of the real international leaders. Well, having lived through an earthquake, I have to tell you, it was one of the most frightening moments of my life. And I found myself a little resistant to talking about them or to you. Is that an after effect, a, a kind of trauma that's common to people after a quake? Probably. Uh, I know that after I um, experienced an earthquake in Mexico City in the late the late 70s, people were killed. You could hear sirens going off. And what did we do? We ran outside. did exactly the wrong thing. Here I am supposed to know what I'm doing, but we ran outside. So later on I said, man, was I lucky or what? I mean, <laughs> it's a completely odd thing to happen. You don't expect it to happen. And indeed, the last big one to happen in... Um, Cascadia was in January of 1700 A.D., which was before the Lewis and Clark expedition. You know, but geologic time has its own uh, time frame. Yeah. Now, look, I want to talk about a couple of other places in the world. Right now, Turkey's almost in a civil war. The buildings collapse there from time to time just because of poor building standards. Is there a quake risk in Turkey as well? Oh, yeah. Yeah, a big time. Turkey, however, Istanbul is a different situation. I've been to Istanbul and worked on it, and I've been to the big fault. There's a fault that runs right offshore from Istanbul called the North Anatolian Fault. And it had a huge magnitude 8 earthquake in 1939 in the very early days of World War II. And you couldn't get there because of the war, but there was a Turkish seismologist and geologist uh, who sent a crew out They worked on this one and several others that happened still during the war. And he was the first guy in the world to uh, publish 
the relationship of the earthquake to plate tectonics, even though plate tectonics wasn't even invented, but the idea that the area to the south of Istanbul is going to move with respect to the area within and to the north. So as a result of that, they had, they had a couple of big earthquakes in 1999, and a lot of people died. One of the illustrations in my book is of an area, an aerial shot of an area that was damaged in the 1999 earthquakes. And the interesting thing is that religious buildings, mosques and minarets, they survived just fine. But all the apartment buildings around Istanbul were, well, they were just big hot piles of rubble, and thousands of people lost their lives. So what that showed me was the Turkish engineers know how to design a proper building, but it's just the corruption is so bad. And people moving to these buildings trying to find work, you know, the, the big population explosion that was going on in Turkey, they have no political stroke at all. You know, they have no... Nobody looking out for them because they're, they're country people coming in there trying to find work. So as a result, they, a lot of them were killed. Thousands of them lost their lives in the 299 earthquakes. So after that, there's been another earthquake warning that was issued, three different studies by three different international groups. And so this time, the Turks are taking it much more seriously. I have a colleague at, at a university in Istanbul called Bogazici, and uh, he has led a campaign along with others, uh, a lot of it by engineers, for preparedness. They have borrowed over a billion dollar, a billion euros to try to make this happening, and they're retrofitting schools and retrofitting hospitals. So Turkey's going to come out better. They actually had an earthquake uh, a few years ago in eastern Turkey, and that sort of got their attention again, and so now they're, they may be one of the big success stories. Now, Tehran, just to the east, equally big city, that's another story entirely. I don't think the mullahs, I think if God wills, they'll have an earthquake and nothing they can do about it, although there are very fine, very highly qualified earthquake engineers and geologists. I work with a colleague who, he's an Armenian Christian, so he had to, he was a refugee, came to the U.S., but nonetheless, he's the most knowledgeable person about earthquakes in Iran, and he and I are publishing a paper. He's also published stuff in Farsi, you know, to try to get people, uh, and he has colleagues that just think he's great, you know, he think he, and which I do too. He's, he's one of my heroes. But nonetheless, the government, they're clueless. Or they, or they, I don't say they're clueless, they just don't have any interest in this problem. If you can't predict it, Inshallah, if God wills, there'll be an earthquake. Not a damn thing we can do about it. <laughs> oh, boy. So it's really, really sad. And there, I think the book tries to focus on places like that, Caracas, in uh, Guayaquil, Ecuador, you know, and um, Jerusalem is another one. They have had earthquakes, and uh, they're fairly close to a major plate boundary fault called the Dead Sea Fault, and they have had earthquakes that are recorded in the Bible, actually. I think the Israelis, um, I have to give them some credit here in that the Israelis take the earthquake threat much more seriously than, let's say, the Iranians do. Now, as the tsunami in Japan showed us, and the one in Indonesia that spread across the whole of South Asia, we don't have to be in an earthquake zone to suffer high casualties from a quake in the ocean floor. Did you write about that in this book? Absolutely, yeah. There's, um, 
Well, that, in the book, um, Living with Earthquakes in the Pacific Northwest, which is available online, it's free, available for free online, and it describes the tsunami of 1964 accompanying the Great Alaskan earthquake of that year. And uh, there are people killed in Oregon and uh, more people killed in California, and that tsunami was spread, spread all, over the, all over the Pacific. Some of the evidence we have from exactly when the last big one, the January uh, 1700 earthquake in Cascadia, the evidence comes from Japan. And the reason is because they recorded that tsunami. They called it an orphan tsunami. And the orphan tsunami didn't have an earthquake associated with it because the earthquake was all the way across the Pacific in our part of the world, Oregon, Washington, British Columbia. And so... Um, that's been a real detective story, and the Japanese, uh, there's a guy named Kenji Sataki, who actually used to teach at the University of Michigan, but he's now with the University of Tokyo. But they have done that, and he's worked with a guy named Brian Atwater, who's with the USGS, and I'm sure you've heard of him. There's actually a book about the orphan tsunami that's been published. Bob Yates, what do you think about the small quakes happening in Oklahoma as a result of fracking? Could a large-scale quake be triggered by fracking? I'm not sure, and I think my take on the Oklahoma quakes is that they're related to um, oil and gas conditions. I don't know, and I'm not going to go out on a limb and suggest, except to say that it's almost certainly related. I mean, formerly, before all of this recent activity, when the price of oil was over $100 a barrel, there were almost no earthquakes in Oklahoma and Kansas and adjacent places. And now there are just huge numbers of them. And my guess is this is related to uh, either fluid injection, or what they call fracking, or, um, or due to uh, wastewater disposal. You know, a lot of when you produce oil and gas, and I'm going to go back to my Shell Oil Company roots here, <laughs> that fracking is sort of a standard way that you increase productivity in wells. And uh, it was been huge uh, additions been made in places like North Dakota, which is a major oil-producing state that it was not before. And so the sad thing is is that uh, once all this started happening and people started getting upset, it was kind of hard for the state government to take this seriously. Well, we don't know if there's any relation or not. Well, of course there's a relationship. Come on. And so uh, it's it's a political hazard kind of going on as we speak. But I don't think that the uh, earthquakes, the largest one I know about is a 5.6. I do not believe that those earthquakes are signs of uh, of a big earthquake because the faults in Oklahoma are totally different from those in the Pacific Northwest. We're starting to run low on time. I just want to squeeze in a couple of other things. Uh, I want to talk to you about Dr. Bill McGuire. He works at the University College of London's Hazard Research Center, and he's published a book and articles, one in the Guardian newspaper in 2012, saying that the masses of melting ice from Greenland and Antarctica will destabilize existing faults. He expects more earthquakes and more volcanic eruptions because of climate change. I don't see anything about that in your new book, Earthquake Time Bombs. Why not? I'm not sure that uh, I buy that story. I have not seen the book. It has not received much press. And I I don't want to badmouth this guy, but nonetheless, in terms of earthquake prediction, just because we can't do it, there are a lot of people out there who think they can. 
And so the book does describe a couple of those. One guy who has a Ph.D. in climatology, actually, uh, and he predicted that we're going to have a big earthquake in New Madrid, Missouri, near St. Louis, between St. Louis and Memphis. And he had some sort of theory about the juxtaposition of planets and so forth. And uh, he put out new, he sold newsletters to people, interested people. And so he said that he actually predicted a date, time for the earthquake. And of course, the media jumped all over it. Yeah, they 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 sent trucks there, you know, and scared everybody to death. And their time came and went, no earthquake. But that's the problem we have, you know. There are people who, and I do write about that. The book has a chapter about when's the next big one, and that book has discussion about some of these um, what I call fake predictions. Another guy predicted a big earthquake in Lima, Peru. And he had a Ph.D. Well, both these guys had Ph.D.s, so watch people that have Ph.D.s. Some of them are you want to listen to and others you don't. And uh, this this guy uh, predicted an earthquake in Lima, Peru. Well, Lima, Peru has lots of earthquakes. And so um, it nearly caused an international incident. And so it, one of uh, the directors of the uh, National Earthquake Hazards Program actually went to Lima, appeared on in the media and said, I'm here. On the day of the earthquake, I'm here because I don't believe there's going to be one, and there wasn't one, and so it, it all went, it all kind of went away. So that's a totally different problem: getting people to take earthquakes seriously, but not to be dissuaded. I'm not saying this guy at the University of London is is in that category. I can only say that in in my I haven't heard a thing about this, but I don't think that um, the melting ice caps of Greenland, personally. I think those those aren't going to produce a huge earthquake. Okay, now we have to wrap up. What do you hope your new book will do? The purpose of the book is to get people, Portland, Vancouver, Seattle, all around the world, to take earthquakes seriously. We have a whole bunch of people who are trying to legitimately forecast an earthquake. And we, we don't use the term prediction. We don't use the P word anymore, but we do use the term forecast. And what we do is we say, what's the probability? That's what I was saying. Chris Goldfinger has done this. Other people have done it. We have one thing that's kind of that's kind of cool that I'll tell you about, and that is that there's short-term signals that, for example, an earthquake wave in the ground goes slower, much slower, than the electronic signal that's recorded on a seismograph and uh Pacific Geoscience Center or Seattle or Port Corvallis, Oregon, for that matter. So you have up to a few minutes to stop if, if surgery going on, operating rooms. Japan has pioneered this, and so they uh, once they get the signal, they shut down the bullet train. I, I call that predicting an earthquake after it happens <laughs> because uh, it's already happened, but the signal hadn't reached you yet. But you still have time, and, and uh, the Mexicans are perhaps among the best. They're up there with the Japanese because their subduction zone is offshore, but the place that is most greatly at, at risk is the city of Mexico City, which is which is built on soft, squishy, uh, jello-like lake clays. And so the damage that was done, there was an earthquake in 1985, and the big damage was done in Mexico City, not on the subduction zone where the earthquake happened. Those are some things that we we can do, but we've, we'd like to be able to improve our prediction 
and there's kind of a controversy. Some of uh, my colleagues who are, are more are seismologists, more knowledgeable than me, think that it, the Earth is just too complicated to do this. Well, my personal early warning system is my dog or my cat. When they take off, I get worried. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah? yeah, some people rely on their horse, you know. Okay. We've been speaking with longtime earthquake expert Robert S. Yates. He's a retired professor emeritus with Oregon State University, an expert in the field, author of works on quakes, and now brings out his new warning book, Earthquake Time Bombs. It's not a technical book, although it is stuffed with fascinating facts, but it's a really good read and a primer for all of us. I enjoyed it. I'll put some links to the quakes and ideas we've talked about in my own show blog at Ecoshock. Info. Bob Yates, thank you so much for talking with us. My pleasure. We'll talk to you again. I'm Alex Smith for Radio EcoShock. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. Will we see a new wave of volcanic eruptions, earthquakes, and tsunamis as climate heating melts the ice caps? Even without that, our just-in-time globally linked financial system is not ready for large-scale disasters. Add in the shaky economic times, with unsupportable debt everywhere, mix in dwindling resources and the hits from extreme weather, it might not take much to darken our future. Meanwhile, where I live in Canada, food prices went up 14% in just one month, according to the government. When I talked with our mega-hazards expert Bill McGuire, he'd just come in from planting potatoes in their home in the Highlands, His family moved out of London. I'm heading out tomorrow to plant my own potatoes in our little village plot. I moved out of Vancouver. Coincidence? Maybe. Radio EcoShock. I've just got time for a quick bit of climate news. It's been so hot around the world that Gavin Schmidt, head of the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies, tweets we already know 2016 will again set a new heat record. It's only April and we know this is going to be another hottest year. This year will likely be about 1.32 degrees C hotter than it was at the end of the 1800s. During the past couple of decades, global mean temperature rose about 0.1 degree per year. This year is expected to be more than twice that. Sure, it's El Nino, but it's El Nino in a rapidly heating world. We don't know if each of these temperature peaks will ever go back down, even a little. The Arctic is so hot, it's practically on fire. Sea ice levels are again the lowest ever recorded for this time of year. Robert Scribbler's blog reports, quote, During the first three months of 2016, the Arctic region above 66 degrees north latitude has been fully 4.5 degrees C hotter than the NASA 20th century baseline, end quote from Robert. You know, he was a professional threats analyst for Jane's, the information service, and he calls on a series of science reports to estimate this wild Arctic warming could drive a cold snap into the United Kingdom and northern Europe this coming week. Colder air that should have been in the Arctic gets driven out and along a trough in the jet stream by a series of heat storms hitting Siberia, Alaska, and northern Canada. Meanwhile, in Australia, scientists and their students are literally driven to tears by the latest assessment of coral health in the Great Barrier Reef. Up to 95% of that coral has been bleached due to hotter oceans. Some of it will recover, maybe. We don't know how much. It's a world-class tragedy, and not enough people are paying attention. Those are the nurseries of the ocean and the wonders of the world. 
And I have to wonder what people in Australia thought would happen after they voted in the climate denial party, got rid of their carbon taxes, and poured on government investments and subsidies into expanding the dirty coal industry. Coal kills the climate, and with it, the systems we depend on. It's as simple as that. I'm Alex Smith. Be sure to follow up with our links to the guests and topics in this week's Radio EcoShock in my show blog, published every Wednesday at ecoshock.info. Thank you for listening and caring about our world.